0: Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier, I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today we're going to talk about the March edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, Today in the studio with us, we have a very special guest. Uh, We're trying to diversify a little bit and get outside of the wine industry specifically, and so we're going to chat to uh, sort of our our local food expert. Maybe you want to introduce yourself and let us know what you do, and uh, yeah.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Carmen Cheng, and I'm um, behind Food Karma blog on Instagram and social media, all the different social media platforms. Um, by day, I'm an HR professional in the energy sector here in Calgary. Um, haven't worked with other industries as well, but then about mm, 10 years ago, <laughs> trying to just get to know the Alberta food scene a bit more, I started blogging and have now fallen into this food community, which has been awesome. So I do write with a few other publications, um, do a little bit of wine tasting here and there, but excited to learn more about wine.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I feel like getting perspectives from people outside the wine industry is definitely something that we need to do more of because uh, the wines that we include in this club, like they, they're not necessarily the conventional wines that you'd pick up off the shelf or that you'd see by the glass at most restaurants. So it's it's cool sort of introducing, you know, as we spoke a little bit earlier about uh, this idea of people who have um palates who have explored a lot of different types of food and, and have tasted, you know, sort of all over the place and, and seen their perspective on these these interesting flavors. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll, I guess maybe I'll jump into it and just explain the first wine and then we can talk about what we have in front of us uh, mm. as well, because we actually have snacks today for once. Uh, I feel like <laughs> snacks is going to have to be a new, uh, I don't know, essential part of the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when you invite guests, they have to bring snacks. <laughs>
0: exactly. I'm going to make that a new mandate for sure. Um, so the first wine in today's wine club is from Brock Cellars. Um, Brock Sellers is an amazing winery uh, in Berkeley, California. Um, Chris Brockway, who who started it, his whole idea was to represent unsung grape varieties from California. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that in California, it's not the grapes that we know now that were originally planted. If you look at sort of the first people to, to immigrate to California from Europe that brought grape vines with them, it was uh, a lot of people from Germany, a lot of people from Italy. And so the grape varieties that we have there now, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, those are French grape varieties. So those were not the grape varieties that were brought over you'd see a lot more, uh, again, Spanish, Italian, German grape varieties. Uh, In fact, Riesling was the most planted grape variety up until after World War II. Um, And so this is sort of his ode to some of those maybe more forgotten grape varieties. Uh, So this is a blend of uh, Marsan, Roussan, Grenache Blanc, and Pickpool, uh, a grape that most people are unfamiliar with, but that's very fun to say, so I wish we, we saw it more on the market. Uh, this is part of their Love series. So this is called Love White. So it's uh, sort of the trio of entry-level wines that they do. They do a white, a red, and a rosé all in the Love series. Hmm. Um, and yeah, the emphasis here is, is on fruit. There's no oak on this at all. Um, and so I find that this wine is is a lot more parable than a lot of wines, but at the same time it has some body to it, so it mm-hmm. can kind of get around uh, some more intense flavors.
1: I think parable um, yeah. is a really good word because when I see it, it's, a little bit cloudy and I almost expect it to taste like super funky Mm -hmm. but I find that it's really sippable. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you would say the same as a wine expert.
0: I would definitely say it is yeah Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess like maybe to to give some context I feel like we've never even given context on this podcast before. But what we do, for those of you who aren't actually directly in the wine club, who just happen to be listening to this, um, we import what are called natural wines. So these are farmed in a way that uh, we believe to be sustainable, whether that be regenerative agriculture, um, whether that be some sort of biodynamics or permaculture, uh, and then they follow that through into the winery. So all the wines that we work with are not colored, not colored, flavored, there's no animal products in them, mm-hmm. there's no GMO yeast, uh, they're not fined or filtered, uh, it's just wild fermented grapes that just end up in the bottle, and uh, there's definitely a reputation for these wines being quite funky, um, but there are definitely examples, uh, and a lot of them happen to be in our portfolio, of wines that are classic in style mm-hmm. um, but maybe have, again, a little bit of cloudiness like this um, or show flavors that are maybe unfamiliar. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe you can talk about uh, what what we brought as a pairing today. And mm-hmm.
1: uh, well, yeah. Eric was nice enough to send me some notes. And one thing that. Um, was talked about in the notes was that this could go well with fish tacos so here in Calgary we have an amazing place called Conme Taco and the three gentlemen behind it are so passionate and I, I'm hearing kind of similar themes around the winemakers you choose as well but so passionate about the craft and you know they bring in corn from Mexico the nixtamalization process for their uh, tortillas and so we have fish tacos in front of us from Conme, which is actually across the street, so it was
0: yeah. <laughs> easy to get. Yeah, from our office. It's just definitely every day uh, that we, we finish work and are trying to walk home, my business partner and I, we both live uh, across the street from one another, and we uh, every time we're walking home, we're like, mm, should we stop in for a quick taco? And maybe a little, you know, mezcal beverage of some sort? <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely challenging not going in all the time.
1: Dangerous, hey?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So, what were some of the your thinking around the pairing? Because it does work. Like when I was trying it, it doesn't um, overpower one another.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Sense, yeah, I think that. Um, so, some of the things that I really think about when I'm when I'm trying to come up with a wine pairing is that there's sort of two different ways of thinking about it. Uh, one is comparable flavors, and one is contrasting flavors. Mm. Um, and I also think of that from a texture perspective. And for me. Um, when I think of wines with with bright acidity, again we were talking about this wine having almost like a Meyer lemon kind mm-hmm. of characteristic to it. Um, I find that wines with bright acidity uh, match well with foods that have are a little bit fattier, uh, are a little bit richer, a little yeah. bit oily. Um, and so in this case, uh, you know, a fried piece of fish. Um, you know, in the, in this case, I think we have some sort of sort of like. Mm, I don't don't know. I don't know what this uh, what this red sauce is, but it sort of reminds me of some sort of like uh, like aioli kind of you know Mm -hmm. spicy aioli aioli kind of vibe, and so I feel like the fattiness of those two things needs something to cut through it. And so for me, um, the idea of pairing it with something like this, um, the other thing that I always try and think about with pairing is is what grows together goes together, Uh, and so this idea that if you look at uh, different regions in the world and what foods you know, have evolved alongside those wines, those are often the best pairings because those food cultures and Mm. wine cultures kind of grew up together. Um, And that could be the case everywhere from, you know, Burgundy, where you have Mm. uh, Poulet de Bresse that pairs really well with both white and red Burgundy, or you have, uh, you know, morel mushrooms and Comte in the Jura Mm -hmm. and those wines pair really well together. So for me, it was this idea that uh, and again, I mentioned it in in the write up that California very recently was Mexico uh, and a lot of people forget that and there's a huge amount of uh, sort of Mexican influence in the food um, as well as in the culture and this extends to um, uh you know to the grape growing and, and to the winemaking and all these sort of things and so my idea was to do sort of like an ode to like what california was because chris is also doing an ode to what california was so uh as much as this is about like the flavor combination it's also definitely about the uh you know, sort of the intellectual side of the uh, of the pairing as well. So.
1: Well that makes a lot of sense and I think right now with COVID like I'm dying to travel but I could almost see this being like on a patio mm-hmm. in California drinking this wine like it kind of has that sort of feel to me and the Meyer lemon description is a really good one I almost feel like you know how you squeeze that lime a little bit on, on your fish taco and totally. it gives yeah. that brightness and it's the same with this wine in terms of um, having a bit of a sip of the wine eating a bite of the, the fish taco Um, so that yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a great pairing. Like I said, it doesn't overpower one another, mm-hmm. which is nice. And I heard from somebody once that you know, a good wine pairing should be if you drink the wine, it makes you feel like you can eat more of the food. Totally, because it cleans your palate. Yeah, which yeah, I, I love
0: that as a descriptor for a good wine pairing for sure. Yeah, um, I think the best wines make me hungry. Uh, so I, I think um, I think that this definitely falls in that category as well. Yeah. Um. Speaking of travel, uh, you know, once this is all over, what's the what's the first place? Is there a first place, or is there like a hundred first places?
1: Oh, there actually is. My partner and I have talked a lot about this, so. We have talked a lot about going to Japan for many years Mm. and we've always put on hold and then we're kicking ourselves now because (laughs) we said we would go last year and we obviously didn't. Um, But I think the first place for us is actually somewhere closer to home. Mm -hmm. And so my family's on Vancouver and I haven't seen them for over a year. So Mm. that will be the first place. But I think you'll be on our way to somewhere else. And so we'll stop Uh, in Vancouver for a week, see my folks, um, see my grandmothers. And then either we'll take, depending on how COVID plays out and vaccinations, either we'll Take a drive. I think down the west coast. Um, my family nice. and I used to do that growing up. So we used to drive down Washington State, Oregon, California. Yeah, um, and then drive nice back drive. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or we might go to Hawaii because it's my favorite place mm. in the world, and just spend like a week and a half or two weeks in Hawaii, and then go back to Vancouver. Nice. How that's
0: about you? so good. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, my list is is far too long. Uh, Japan is probably number one on the list. Yeah. I. Uh, I had a significant birthday recently, and uh, the my original thought, again, long before this ever mm-hmm. uh, came to fruition, was that I wanted to go to back to Japan for my birthday. Uh, I wanted a non-wine trip for my oh. birthday. Uh, <laughs> not that there isn't really great wine, uh, both being consumed and made in Japan. Uh, in fact, we're actually going to be importing a Japanese wine uh, in the very near future here. Um, but yeah, that that was that's definitely number one on the list, yeah. and then. Uh, you know, we thought of doing the same sort of jump over uh, sort of thing where it's, you know, start off in Japan and then maybe dip over to Thailand quickly okay. because uh, I've for the longest time been uh, been very enamored with Thai food yeah. um, in particular. So I'd definitely like to, uh, you know, visit the country and actually tour around a little bit for yeah. once. So.
1: so what kind yeah. of natural wine would you pair with Thai food? Because I often hear people pair like Rieslings or... Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: definitely. And I think... Uh, I think for me, uh, I really like that idea, especially because of the spice component in Mm -hmm. so much of Thai cuisine. Like obviously it's not all spicy, uh, but the components that are, Mm -hmm. I think pair really well with an off dry Riesling, something with a touch of sweetness, that high acidity. Mm. Um, But I think there are other great varieties that do like strangely well with Mm -hmm. it. Things like uh, sparkling muscat, Oh, um, interesting! Yeah, I love sparkling wine with mm-hmm. with most foods, in all honesty, but especially with Thai food, I think it gets along really well. Mm. Um, and then things like rosés. I think rosé is really underrated as a pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the more sort of like savory, darker, spicier, more umami styles of mm-hmm. rosé that we see in the natural wine world a little bit more in the than in the conventional wine world mm-hmm. um, pair really well with sort of the more um, sort of like deeper, richer styles of curry that they have there that are based on sort of, again, like the, the Thai curry, uh, the Thai red curry spices, which yeah. are, are so very different from a lot of the other renditions. So yeah, yeah I, I think that that's a handful of things. Red wine and, and Thai food just does not get along for me. I, <laughs> I can't think of a single red wine that I really wanna have with Thai food, but I'm sure somebody out there will give me a, you know, a good, good advice, at least on a particular dish. Yeah. I don't know what that would be necessarily, but...
1: Oh, that's interesting. And then we talk yeah. about wine travel, do you mainly travel like and visit wineries and look for finds or...? Yeah, you know, definitely. Places?
0: For us, a lot of it is about visiting the producers that we already work with. Mm. Um, we really like seeing them as often as we can. We like to have this personal relationship with them. We like knowing what's going on with them and their oh, family. Yeah. And, and for us, that's a huge component of selling the wines is that, you know, we, we can get our hands on most wines in the world. And for us, you know, it's it's this idea of accountability. One where it's like you go out to the vineyard and you can see whether they're farming in a way that's sustainable or not. Like you mm-hmm. can you can tell. If everything's dead in the vineyard, then you know that they're they're farming using, you know, pesticides and herbicides and things like that versus, you know, going out there and walking the vineyards, we get a way better idea. Um, so yeah, a lot of the time it's visiting producers we're already working with, mm-hmm. um, but every once in a while we'll go visit sort of a new producer and, and sort of scope them out and, and yeah. see if they're you know they're worth hanging out with for sure. Fun. So yeah.
1: Look, I'm learning yeah. already so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, I, uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad that I'm able to impart at least something to this uh, <laughs> to this conversation. Um, Yeah, maybe I'll pour the next wine here, and then maybe we can chat a little bit about uh, sort of some of your uh, current work with... Well, yeah, maybe I'll ask you about that and then I'll pour the wine and then we can, uh, we can sure. talk about the wine afterwards. But recently on Instagram, you've been posting a lot about um, sort of two different communities uh, that are really centered around food. Uh, one being International Ave and then the other one being Chinatown. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about how that came about and, uh, you know, sort of what your efforts are there and, and how we can support.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I I would say that um, those two specifically is really around a campaign that the City of Calgary is doing with the federal government. Um, I hope everyone could hear the wine being poured. It sounds so nice. (laughs) But uh, the City of Calgary has worked with the federal government um, to look at ways we can support local businesses. And going, you know, being a, I don't like the word influencer, but creating content, I guess, um, we get lots of requests all the time. And usually, I I would say I actually probably decline about 90% of requests to do work just because I have a full-time job. It has to really align with what I stand for. But when the city came and said, like, you know, we're working on a campaign for support supporting small local businesses, like I jumped on it right away because it is a big part of my point of view um, in terms of the, the places I want to talk about. And so we talked about um, just which communities might be the ones that I would want to focus on. And I mean, International Avenue and Chinatown and Beltline, which is the area that we're, we're here, um, kind of near right now, were the areas that first came to mind for me because those are the areas that, you know, for International Ave and Chinatown, I think that there's a lot of um, mystique around it. I think people still haven't fully explored those areas, but I think there's a lot of interest, and I see a lot of engagement whenever I post about restaurants or food from those areas Um, or even, like, little-known, you know, small um, international, you know, places or grocery stores, like I think my one video on TikTok that got the most engagement was about True World Foods, Mm. which is this teeny tiny Japanese grocery store, um, because people hadn't heard about it. And so I think there's always a lot of mystique. And so when we narrowed it down to International Ave and Chinatown, I was really happy. And particularly because another campaign that I'm working on is around uh, anti-racism, and particularly a response to some of the anti-Asian hate crimes that we're seeing around the world. And so it aligns perfectly from a messaging perspective of let's talk about these small businesses in these areas. Let's talk about how they've been impacted from a COVID pandemic and probably even longer before a lot of other businesses have been because I know Chinatown had seen a decreased traffic since like November, December 2019, which has -hmm. been a few months before the rest of um, our city. And also let's talk about, you know, some of the cool things that you can find in those areas, but it also lines well with that anti-racism message. And it's funny because I started talking about, you know, some businesses and I had asked for recommendations on Instagram and I was flooded with people's comments just around like businesses that they do like but i also got some messages where one person messaged me and she's like thank you so much for talking about international ave like i love eating there but when i ask my friends if they want to come with me you know i get the response of like uh, i don't know i don't want to get sick i don't want to get oh, shot at goodness. yeah for sure <laughs> So there are definitely some you know stereotypes still yeah. around areas that are impoverished or areas that um are more like international mm-hmm. that I think that we still need to kind of break the stereotype of
0: yeah definitely i feel like uh even though i only reached out to you a month ago like a year's worth of things have happened between yes. uh between then and now um yeah i i i uh, i think it was yesterday that you you posted the the shrimp and egg fried hofan from uh calgary court yeah. and uh it was really interesting sort of having that as like a little bit of a flashback to being you know 14 years old and um my friend inviting me to go to Chinatown for the first time. And for me, again, it, it was sort of like a, it was like traveling to another world realistically. And for me, that that was hugely important in sort of my understanding of how uh, diverse Calgary was and how diverse Calgary could be. Mm-hmm. And so at the start of COVID, when when things were shutting down, um, a lot of the restaurants that were getting hype are the ones with the social media accounts. Mm-hmm. and this necess- isn't necessarily the case for a lot of the restaurants in, in Chinatown so we sort of made an effort to uh, you know eat out especially from you know we have a handful of you know, favorite places mm-hmm. there, um, and so you know Calgary Court being one of them, yeah. Great Taste being yeah. you know probably the place that I frequent the most often, um, but also like Silver Dragon and things like that, where it's you know these these sort of special meals that we've had over the years, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they just again they definitely do not get the same hype on on social media as you know sort of the the Big Ten in. In Alberta, So it's, it's sure. yeah, it's definitely really exciting to see somebody with as much influence as you, you know, being able to reach that many people about those.
1: Yeah, you know, well, I think there's so much to unpack in what you said. I think, A, you're absolutely right. I think um, a lot of businesses during COVID has been a tough time, but I also think that a lot of them took this time to kind of reset themselves mm-hmm. around a business model that works better. And we've certainly seen even some of those places in Chinatown or in International Avenue do that. And, you know, there's some businesses in Chinatown that started an Instagram account, mm. started reaching out to influencers, was like, how do we, you know, get our names out there in like mainstream social media, right? Yeah. And I can think of a really um, good example is Ch- the Chinese Cultural Center mm. Cuisine. CCCC, that's like, <laughs> I'm trying Perfect. to think of their handle, right? Yeah. Um, and so they do a lot of family-style meals, which mm-hmm. is very traditional in Chinese culture. And for Chinese New Year, they had like this big family-style meal, but it also kind of they did that around Christmas time as well and they got so much hype on social media they have an Instagram account, they hired somebody um, who's Chinese-Canadian who can kind of help them navigate between the two worlds and and you know and, and speak to that right and, and yeah. we're seeing a lot more folks um, on social media who might not have the awareness of these businesses mm-hmm. go on and, and see them but also I think a lot of them got set up on third party delivery apps, a lot of them got set mm. up on just their own online ordering websites and so I think COVID has pushed a lot of businesses to think about how they can do business differently. But the other thing you talked about is the exploration of how rich our city is. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so much to talk about there. Like I'm from Vancouver, and a lot of my friends in vancouver are like oh how's calgary and like how's the beef right It's all these stereotypes it's like it's so cold oh <laughs> but yeah. i think we sometimes lack that um understanding of all the different offerings calgary has mm-hmm. from a cultural perspective and yeah. i think international avenue is a great example i actually even doing this project and reaching out to their business association i found out that they have over 100 restaurants on that one street or 100 food businesses, I think I should oh say, on that goodness. one street. But Holy. it explains why every time we drive down it, my partner says, how come we're not eating here all the time? He's mm-hmm. like, what's that place? What's this place? We haven't heard of that, right? Totally. And it's because there's so much richness there, and they represent so many different countries around the world. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I know for me, it's sometimes hard to think about, let's go and try this one place that's advertising pupusas, because I've never been there before. Like, there's a certain risk of what if it's not good? For
0: sure, yeah. And
1: so part of the campaign with the City of Calgary was um, one of the ideas I had pitched was this concept of like adopt a street. Mm -hmm. And knowing that we're not traveling right now, could we encourage the public to pick an area and explore that area almost like you would if you're a tourist? Maybe pick three or four businesses to support. And, you know, I mean, with some of our restrictions right now, sometimes it's not safe to necessarily go into businesses. Mm -hmm. But you could do it virtually, too. So pick an area, pick three or four businesses, and maybe look up their websites, see what they offer, Mm -hmm. look at their Instagram accounts, look at their social media. And you might find some cool products that are out there if you take the time but
0: and i think a lot of people do that already with other uh areas in the city like i i definitely do it with inglewood for instance where i'm like cool awesome i know that i'm gonna go uh you know for coffee in the east village Uh, Then I'm going to walk across the bridge and then I know that I'm going to go for a beer. I'm going to go for lunch. I know that I'm going to go shopping at a handful of shops that I really like over there. Stop in and see everybody. I'm going to go to, you know, Bricks Wine Co. I know that I'm going to go for dinner after that. And then all of a sudden I've spent, you know, nine, ten hours all in one area. But I knew that I was planning to do that. And so, yeah, I think that that's one of the best ways to explore your own city. And not only that, but it feels like vacation. Yeah. It definitely... (laughs) does not feel like you're in your own city when you just choose to be sort of that level of indulgent and for just sure. you know treat it like you're traveling and it's it can definitely be that like have that second coffee have like you know two baked goods with breakfast like you know mm. go for it and so I think that that's a that's a really cool way of doing it is sort of this idea of again sort of exploring a particular uh, particular area in the city yeah
1: sure. pick a street and, and just walk and see how it goes right
0: yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Uh, cool. Well, I'll talk about the next wine here and then we can, uh, we can taste through it and and test it. Our next taco here. Um, apparently this has turned into a taco tasting, which is, uh, exactly what I was (laughs) hoping it would turn into. Um, so this next wine, this is probably the most famous wine in our portfolio. Um, we included it once in the wine club, uh, like three years ago now. And, um, realizing that we actually had enough stock of it to include the new vintage in this wine club was really exciting for us. Um, this is Gut Ogau's Athanasius. So Gut Ogau is located in Bergenland in Austria. They're just south of Vienna. Uh, it's about an hour and 15 minutes south of Vienna. Mm. Um, this area is centered around a, a lake called the Neusiedler See. Um, It's a very shallow lake, lots of cool freshwater fish and eels and stuff like that. So their cuisine is sort of focused around things like that. Um, And uh, this is a really interesting blend of grapes. So This is Blaufrankisch and Zweigelt, grapes that a lot of people are unfamiliar with but that are sort of the mainstay of uh, Austrian grape varieties, of Austrian wines. Um, these great varieties really contrast one another. Uh, blau Frankish tends to be more powerful and dark-fruited, um, almost reminiscent of Bordeaux, versus Zweigelt uh, tends to be a lot more juicy, red-fruited, often sort of reminiscent of, uh, you know, sort of almost like Gamay Noir meets Pinot Noir, bright, fresh, juicy. Um Kurogao is a biodynamic farm, so they're uh, basically a closed ecosystem that takes care of itself. Uh, They plow their vineyards using a horse. Uh, They're just like a husband and wife team that farm, you know, a handful of acres with their, uh, they have a couple staff that are on full time now. This is very weird for a winery. Normally wineries don't have a ton of annual staff that, that are on like the entire year, but they believe in all these sort of side projects of um, you know, taking care of, uh, you know, the environment around the actual vineyards um, and doing all these, you know, sort of extra things that that really they think benefits the wine. Um, they're very spiritual people. Um, they are very obsessed with sort of like the energy and the feeling. And their whole mm-hmm. idea is that if we make a place that feels really good to live and feels really good to farm, the wines are going to buy by necessity have to taste good. Mm-hmm. And so they don't even list the grape varieties on the label. They don't know how much of each grape variety is in the wine. They don't keep notes about uh what the vintage was like or as far as their wine making techniques. Um and so one third of this was basically red grapes made as white wine and then two thirds were made as conventional red wine. Uh having sipped this, you know, during our conversation, it's one of the most thrilling wines in the portfolio for me. It has just this vibrancy to it, this electricity mm-hmm. to it, this tang, um, but at the same time being fully ripe and juicy and soft. Um, it, it's got it's got a little bit of everything going on for it. And it's just such a beautiful style of wine. So it's, it's very exciting to get to share them.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that um, I can see the progression where the last one was a little bit lighter in terms of the flavor. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's, it's a bit more robust. I wouldn't yeah. I don't know if you would call it full body. I would not call it full body. I think it's no. still kind of on that lighter side.
0: Yeah, it's really sneaky because I, I think a lot of people um, associate body with intensity of flavor. Mm-hmm. And so this wine tricks a lot of people into thinking that it's full body because it's it's full flavor. Yes. It's like hyper saturated yes. with flavor, but it's like really light. It's like a gazpacho or something like that, where you're like, yeah. this couldn't be more flavorful, but at the same time, it's like light and delicate. Um, Yeah, it's a style that I really like in wine.
1: Yeah, I think juicy is a good term for in the tang, but I also get this flavor in like the back of my tongue that almost speaks to that like funkiness or there's like, um, I don't think bitter is the right word, but there's definitely a a bit more of that robustness that comes Mm -hmm. through on the back of the tongue. Um, And the taco that we have is the asado. I was trying to look it up on the website to see if there was a des- description, and there isn't. There might be a feature. <laughs> but I do know that uh, the meat on the asado taco has been, like, there's a certain grilling with this. You kind of really get that smokiness or that, like, char-grilled flavor. And I feel like the two, the char-grilled flavor goes really well with this wine. Like, it kind of— I agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I can, the two kind of complement each other, which is really strange, because we didn't pair this one at all. This was just snuck into our bag from the folks at con me.
0: Yeah, this (laughs) this was a freestyle taco, for sure. Um, No, I I honestly think it's such a good pairing. The other sneaky thing that's on here is beans. Mm -hmm. And this area is actually really famous for for beans and bean dishes. Mm. On the other side of the border in Hungary, um, you know, about a half an hour drive away, there's this really interesting dish that I cannot remember the name of for the life of me. But it's basically um, like a savory bean bun. Uh, Mm. It's like, kind of imagine the equivalent of like Japanese sort of like azuki bean sort of, you know, bean paste sort of. Uh, like baked good um, but savory instead where it's 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 definitely got a little touch of sweetness to it but it's got um, again a lot more savory components to it and I think the beans on this are sort of like reminiscent Mm -hmm. of that so it's almost this weird kind of cross-cultural you know if you find a bean dish from somewhere else in the world it's going to also pair with this just the way that uh that that bean dish would for sure.
1: But I think that that's very indicative of what we see with food is there are so many dishes cross-cultural. They're very similar mm. or similar in, like, spices or similar in, like, how they make you feel and, and just the technique of it, even though the cultures and the countries are so far apart in the world. Yeah. Like, we always joke that... Um, when we travel, my partner and I, it almost becomes a lot of food travel where we like to try different foods or we have like different restaurants on our list to go check out or different like food stands to check out. And we just joke that like beef tripe is one of those dishes where mm-hmm. you go to Mexico and you have, you know, the, the tripe there, but you go to Italy and you have like tripa <laughs> and it's the same. And then you go to Asia and you have like, again, all those different beef tripe dishes totally. and they all have that like braised the spices and the warmth of it, mm-hmm. um, even though the cultures and the countries are so different.
0: Yeah, I think there's this really amazing quality that everywhere in the world kind of had, well, at least after, um, I can't remember what they call it, the, uh, the Atlantic Exchange, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like after, um, you know, sort of the, the first colonizers came over from Europe and there started being this sort of international exchange of ingredients, um, we all kind of had the same stuff. Mm-hmm. all around the world and we all had to figure out how to cook it and use it to the best of our mm-hmm. abilities and a lot of us came up with the same things and for instance you know things like stomachs and yeah. intestines braising them for a long period of time yeah. in something that's maybe acidic like tomatoes do so you see that mm-hmm. that sort of similarity across the board whether it be like you were saying in in asia whether you see it in mexico mm-hmm. whether you see it in italy um so it's that really interesting thing where it's like if you give a bunch of people from a really wide uh you know, sort of all these different culinary backgrounds, they might come up with the same techniques, but then the flavor signatures are going to be what's a little bit different. And I think that's really cool.
1: It is really cool. Do you see the same thing with wine? Like where you see different parts of the world kind of do similar types of blends or...
0: Definitely, yeah. And wine has definitely been really heavily influenced by, uh, in particular, Western Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, to sort of the... It's... Definitely a problem in my opinion, in the sense that it's made the wine world uh, a lot more homogenous than it used Mm -hmm. to be. But I think a lot of people would also argue that the quality of wine right now is the the best it's ever been. but we're also seeing the resurfacing of all these different wine techniques from elsewhere in the world. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that with the next wine, but uh, one of the ones that we can we can highlight is the wines of Georgia. Um, so again, right on the, you know, sort of uh, this sort of uh, like, I don't know, like a completely different part of the world from where we think of where wine yeah. comes from. Uh, and they're using a completely different technique that's existed for the last you know, six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 years wow. um, of taking uh, what they call quivri, um, so these these clay amphora that they bury in the ground mm. and they actually fill that with grapes and then seal them um, with something like beeswax or in some cases um, like a type of local clay. And they seal them and let them ferment basically underground. Uh, oh. And so we're starting to see people all over the world, even in the Okanagan Um there's producers using this technique that's really? a very much a Georgian technique versus if you look back 20 years ago and everybody was making wine basically the same way that uh you know that they were in France mm-hmm. in Bordeaux everywhere in the world all the wines tasted like they came from Bordeaux mm. regardless of where they were grown versus now I think there's this quest for you know diversity and and, mm-hmm. and originality and uh specificity this idea that not everything has to taste the same and that you know that's something to be celebrated as opposed to uh I don't know, I guess, laughed at in some cases. Yeah,
1: it's almost like a globalization where we have access to education Mm-hmm. Uh, much more readily now than we have ever had. We have access to information like much more readily now than we ever had. Mm-hmm. And so that sharing of information could lend itself to you know, exploring new crafts, exploring new techniques, new processes, sharing information. I know Miko at Kami, we've talked about how he's reached out to some folks in Mexico who are very well known chefs and he gets responses around how yeah. they you know do make their tortillas and that's how he learned too, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same probably I would imagine the wine world where you have access to share information if you're open yes. to that collaboration mm-hmm. versus thinking about you know this is the way I do it and I don't want to um, collaborate I just want to focus on my own thing right
0: yeah well I think that that conversation about globalization also really extends um, to the world of food as well in the sense mm-hmm. that uh, again if we look back 20 years ago the same time that all these wines were all tasting the same um, there was every famous restaurant was like a French restaurant, Mm -hmm. Uh, regardless Mm -hmm. of where it was, whether it was in Hong Kong, whether it was in, uh, you know, in in Brazil. uh, Mm -hmm. It was all all the famous restaurants were French restaurants with French wines, and they were using, you know, maybe ingredients from, you know, their particular Mm -hmm. country, um, but making it in this French style. And that was considered like the epitome versus now, if you go to Chile, or if you go to mm-hmm. you know Mexico, or if you go to Asia, the famous restaurants are now celebrating their own ingredients again and their own techniques. And I think we're seeing the same thing in the wine world as well, where it's like, cool, we're not judged on how well we can copy France anymore. We're judged on um, you know sort of the the intrigue level and the usefulness of our yeah. local ingredients and and how we can we can share those with people. So
1: yeah, it's a really good parallel. I think in the food world, we still see that oftentimes the restaurants that are, um, you know, awarded and and get the accolades are the ones that are Mm. very European focused, at least in service, or even at least in their techniques. And I think French cuisine has been the one that, you know, a lot of um, the culinary world has looked to as the top of its game. And I think especially when we travel, we see a lot more influences, especially, like, from Japan, as an example. Mm. Japanese cuisine and the culinary scene in Japan has had so many accolades in the last few years, right, that you're seeing a lot of that come into even North America. I think that the way our award systems, though, have not caught up to it. And so I know that a lot of food award lists and and restaurants lists, especially here in Canada, get a lot of, um, like, that they have really bad reputation for sometimes not diversifying that list. Yeah. And I think that stems from the criteria that we're judging those restaurants on as being like the best restaurants in the country. Oftentimes don't doesn't allow for the diversity of how other countries might approach food. And so, I mean, um, in Japan, they are, I think they have the most amount of Michelin starred restaurants yeah. in the world. But they also give Michelin stars to street vendors. Oh, yeah who are, you know, dedicated and the street vendors have dedicated their lives to perfecting this one dish. Mm-hmm. And that one dish has a Michelin star. But I think when you come to North America, a lot of times our accolades are based off of like what's your service level? What is the ambiance yeah, like? what's the cutlery? <laughs> what's yeah, the cutlery? Sure. Yeah. And those restaurants that are, you know, maybe focused on the food and not anything else might not make that list. Mm-hmm. And it's I think we're going to have to diversify the way we think about food the way we think about um what's good food mm-hmm. you know in a good food experience and how we award those that that service um but i'm also curious your thoughts around wine because i think i see points and i don't always know what they mean yeah. but is it the same thing <laughs> like how has the wine world been able to kind of um catch up to the globalization or the diversification
0: Yeah, we're definitely at a weird point in the wine industry where there's been huge backlash towards the point system Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, people always ask me like, oh, what's your favorite wine? And I was like, well, like, it depends on where I am. Like, (laughs) like, say, say my favorite wine happens to be, you know, a big, bold, rich red wine. Mm And I'm sitting on a beach with a bunch of oysters, yeah. then that wine is a zero out of a hundred. <laughs> it is the it is the literal worst thing I could yeah. possibly be drinking in that moment. And so even though it might have been the best wine in a particular situation, it's 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 a terrible wine in that situation. And so in that case, like mm-hmm. I'd rather have a fifteen dollar bottle of rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's like gets a higher score in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so I think wine is so situational, mm-hmm. um, that it's it's it'd be really unfortunate to, to rate it on, on any sort of system like that. Because of this, and because of sort of this, this you know, trying to fit it into a particular uh, rubric for deciding mm-hmm. what's good and what's bad, um, a lot of people have felt left out and that a lot mm-hmm. of flavors were left out and the people who were making decisions over what flavors were considered appropriate versus not appropriate, um, things like clarity, again, the wines that we have today are, are all cloudy. <laughs> Maybe those wouldn't be, you know, rated as highly because they're like, oh, they, well, they should have find or filtered these. Yeah. Like, well, it wasn't because they were lazy. it's because they chose not to find or filter them because they thought based on their rubric that these wines tasted better and, and yeah. more alive this way. And so that's definitely a huge discussion in the wine industry right now is, uh, you know, how do we continue Comparison uh, between mm-hmm. wines without having you know sort of this uh, this list of flavor profiles yeah. or this list of you know common traits, and I think there are there are certain undeniable things that you can you can look at in a wine. You know the balance of acidity to body to sweetness to mm-hmm. tannins. To you can look at those those physical components of the wine and yeah. be like, do these make sense? Um, but uh, you know, when it comes to what, what actual flavors are in mm-hmm. the wine and, and what makes a wine really good, uh, I think it, I think it's changed so much in the last couple of years. And definitely, the people in sort of our sphere of the yeah. the wine industry and the natural wine industry are very like counterculture to to that. They refuse to even have certifications in a lot of cases. Like there's no certification for a natural wine, so mm-hmm. you just have to know. You just have to ask somebody. Yeah. And it's uh yeah, it's all sort of a little more nebulous, which is good in some ways, but as somebody who who does enjoy a certain sense of academia, um, it it's you know I'm I'm sort of torn on what the best sure. way of approaching it is. Uh, it being more nebulous definitely makes it more challenging on the consumer; mm-hmm. they're not sure what. to you know, what to look for in a wine. It's not
1: black and white anymore, right? Yeah. It's like all different shades of gray.
0: Totally. And I think it's the
1: same for restaurants. I think if we continue down the way we are, where it's like a certain criteria for a best overall restaurant. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue to see the same restaurants make the the lists because those are the ones that are set up to fit the criteria Definitely. but then you know you have the uh, like consumers out there and people who want to dine and they want to try new places and it's easier for them to pick up a list and go okay I see that the top 10 restaurants in Canada are these 10 so I'm going to make it a point to visit all top 10 um, versus having these conversations around like you know what sorts of experiences might you be looking for or you can go to this one place that's um, relatively unknown and have like this one dish that's phenomenal um, versus like that that one experience or labeling mm-hmm. it with a number yeah
0: yeah no i agree i um because we're eating tacos i'll use this as a as a reference point but <laughs> when i visited la last time um my two favorite food experiences were like as contrasting as it could possibly be uh one of them was uh this place called bestia yeah. that's like a an italian place run by a bunch of young people um who are all very excitable, uh, incredibly talented at what they do, making like, again, really thoughtful Italian food, kind of a rustic style, really wild, but refined in the right ways. Um, and uh, an amazing wine list that mm-hmm. was extraordinarily expensive, but definitely <laughs> worth it in the, in most cases. And uh, that, was, that was a really great experience. And I thought that was one of the best service experiences I've ever had. The other thing that is equally a great experience was we went to um, Cactus Taqueria Number 1, uh, which was a roadside taco stand that we went to at, like, 2 in the morning, and they were just getting going at that point. And uh, we sat at... um, at picnic tables and ate tacos outside Uh, and uh you know at two in the morning and I was like this is like absolutely outrageously good food like to this day that is one of the best tasting things I've ever uh you know ever had in my entire life uh was uh they did um, a chicharron taco oh uh, yeah that was all chicharron yeah yeah and it was So spicy. Yeah. I didn't even know it was spicy for like five minutes. I had it and I was like, I feel weird. Why do I feel so weird? I feel like elated. I feel like my pupils are really dilated. I feel oh like goodness. I'm breathing way deeper. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy spicy. And I it's so hot that my mouth doesn't even know. It's just like, yeah. it's like I don't know what that is.
1: Interesting, hey? <laughs> so when you travel and you look back on your, those experiences, is it like the the latter experience that you're talking about where it's a bit more casual, you're out there on the patio just having a great time that stick out in your mind afterwards? Is it like the... I'd say that they're
0: equal, frankly. Yeah, Yeah. I I think it would be, it'd be very hard for me to decide where I was having more fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I can definitely say that like the worst food experience that we had on that trip was at the most expensive, most pretentious Mm -hmm. restaurant where, you know, I like... I, I dress weird for the most part and so yeah. when I go into one of those restaurants especially in a place like LA that has sort of they can afford to have a fine dining scene yes. versus here like again I, I go into whatever the closest equivalent to that we have to fine dining like teatro t-shirt. and I walk in with yeah. a teacher and I feel fine yeah. uh, our customer base is really great for that being like hey cool take us how we are um, mm-hmm. you know we're really great for that but going in there I was you know both my business partner and I were just like, cool. I feel extraordinarily uncomfortable here. They're <laughs> no. looking at us like we're we're out of our minds. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, all we want to do is just like drink a really good bottle of wine and have a couple bites of food. And and I just felt uncomfortable to the yeah. point where I didn't really enjoy the experience. And so, you know, those two other experiences, even though they were completely contrasting, were both equivalently good because of that level of, of being invited mm-hmm. Um. You know sort of brought into it and so i don't know I, I can't really decide which one was the best experience but i can definitely yeah. say that the most pretentious experience was the worst experience
1: well it's interesting to me because i think there's like most memorable or some, somebody said to me once maybe a restaurant lists you know like even for a blogger instead of talking saying something is the best maybe we need mm. to frame it from like most memorable or most favorite Um, and it is funny because like even when we travel like in Italy I think I've been there twice now Mm. and I think about some of my favorite experiences in Italy and it's like that you know family-owned small business you know you see them making that pasta you're like you know driving through rural Tuscany and just like we had stopped into a place and like we ended up loving it so much that my partner went to Italy twice more after and he actually went to Italy with some phenomenal chefs. Like he went with Ben mm-hmm. Acosta um, oh, and Edmonton nice. and his team. And like brought them in with him because like the experience and the food and to your point is kind of like that marriage of like there's such hospitality in there. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're eating there and there's like a dog sleeping under a table with his owner, right? While he's the owner's eating and the and you're drinking wine that you don't even know what it is because they've just poured it for you. But yeah. it's the full experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think on that same trip um, to Italy the first time we went to like a two-star Michelin restaurant and it was good yeah. you know and and even the full experience was wonderful but in terms of which was more memorable or favorite experience for me that I want to go back to time and time again yeah it's like I want to seek out that uh, Osteria Asteria is the place that we okay. snumbled into nice in Tuscany. yeah super cool <laughs>
0: I think that's a really interesting point too where we talk about these different styles of service because there are certain places in the world, like notably um, in like France and in China, where the service style is way different yep. than what we'd expect in North America. And that doesn't make it bad, it just makes it different. Yep. And I think a lot of people have bad experiences going into restaurants like that because they're unfamiliar with that service no. style and that they have certain expectations. Uh, You know, I think in North America, we love being pandered to, uh, especially in restaurants where like, hey, we're coming out for the night. I'm going to give you my $50 and you better treat me like the king of the world. Uh, (laughs) Versus in other places, it's it's not quite the same. Again, in in France, uh, you know, pretty standoffish service. Like, hey, I'm here to get you your food. Um, You know, everything's going to be great and I'll take care of you for sure. But, like, I don't need to do, like, a song and dance. I'm not going to, like, you know. And then same thing in in China, specifically in certain types of cuisine, where it's like, hey, like, again, I'm here to facilitate you getting delicious food. I'm not here to chat with you necessarily. And so I think a lot of people have negative experiences at those restaurants because they're expecting the thing that they maybe grew up with, which is again Earl's style service or yeah. you know Moxie style service or whatever whatever your equivalent is, for but, sure. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's interesting because criteria is so subjective, right? And in mm-hmm. certain parts of Asia, especially major centers, the value on efficiency
0: mm. is
1: much greater. And so even like Ichiran is a great example because they're a ramen chain across Asia, and I th- mm-hmm. maybe even some places in North America, um, but people who go there always joke that you order from a vending machine and then oh, yeah. you sit in the kiosk by yourself. Yeah. And you don't sit with your friends. So you're all in your, like, individual kiosks. And the value is placed on um, focusing on your food and eating it quickly mm-hmm. and enjoying your food and not, like, talking to other people. Right? Totally.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's a – like, I actually really like that every once in a while because I find – sometimes i've gone out for these extravagant meals and i've just been having such good time with my friends that i will have eaten a dish and i won't even remember having eaten it i'm like oh my goodness i really wish that i had like paid attention to that uh and you see it with wine too where you spend you know a fortune on a bottle of wine but you're just like you're yeah. enjoying this is why i always tell people that like don't save your special bottles of wine for special occasions because it should be about the occasion not about the bottle of wine and like Either way, you're going to be disappointed. Either you spent too much time focusing on the wine and not enough time focusing on the occasion, or you spent too much time focusing on the occasion and not enough time focusing on this wine that you spent a fortune on. That's so really it's like, good advice. Open the expensive bottles on a Tuesday night when you're sitting on the couch watching Netflix. Like that's when you should be opening the, the baller bottles on the uh, you know special occasions. You know nothing wrong with a bottle of prosecco every once in a while. Yeah. So that's yeah.
1: really good advice, and you'd be <laughs> horrified if you came over to our place because we have two bookshelves of wine that we just like sit on, like we're just waiting. And (laughs) recently, because Teatro is actually a good example. So quite a number of years ago, there was a sommelier at Teatro who recommended this wine and um, we got a bottle of it and we were like, oh, maybe we'll just, wait for a special time to open it and i think like seven six seven years have passed and we haven't opened the bottle of wine and then during the pandemic we realized it was leaking so now we can't drink that bottle of wine oh you can definitely
0: drink it (laughs) can you oh yeah it'll be fine it'll be fine
1: (laughs) we're like so is the cork damage like do we need to like throw it out now no it'll
0: be fine i'd say definitely drink it like sooner rather than later Mm -hmm. second that you start having leakage like that there's more opportunity for oxygen to enter the bottle which will make it start aging quicker um but yeah, you know, a lot of people are like really horrified when they see a really messed up cork. Um, but I'm definitely not one of those people. Sometimes when a cork is really messed up, it's uh, it's actually the best bottle of wine I've tasted. Oh, so,
1: um,
0: yeah, so I'd be I, I wouldn't be too worried about it. It's definitely worth opening and trying at okay. the very least. So
1: I think it's uh, this like bad perception that we have of like oh aged wine's better so you should wait but you really shouldn't because what I've learned is like there's certain optimal years to try wine or that it just tastes different throughout the years
0: yeah definitely and it all depends on what you want too like drinking wine younger is going to show off the fruit versus Mm. drinking wine older is going to show off what we call tertiary characteristics so Mm. characteristics that come from uh age as opposed to the actual fruit so you'll get a lot more Savory components, a lot more leafy qualities, like tobacco mm. leaves and forest floor. And if you don't like those flavors, then you're aging your wine for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you've aged a wine, but you actually don't like what old wine tastes like. It's not a, it's not a good <laughs> sign. But how would you de-
1: describe this next wine?
0: Yeah, so I'll give you a rundown quickly. This is um, from Louis Anton Lut. Uh, he's uh, actually from France. He's from Beaujolais, one of the most famous regions in Fr- in France. Um, and he worked with um, uh, Marcia, uh, Marcel Lapierre a uh, really famous producer you know sort of natural wine legend in in Beaujolais but he fell in love with Chile uh, mm. so he ended up making wine in in mole in in southern Chile um, and finding all these uh, wildly old vines so these vines are 200 plus years old uh, some of them up to 300 plus years old which is quite wild um, and this is the original grape variety that, that came over from, uh, from Spain, speci- specifically probably from the Canary Islands, actually. All right. So I was just listening to our Wine Club podcast before releasing it, and uh, I noticed something, uh, an example of how white supremacy sneaks its way into the way that we speak about wine. Um, in the podcast, I was describing uh, the introduction of a grape variety called Paii into uh, South America, and in particular Chile. And I talked about this idea that I had heard a million times before uh, that um, when bringing this grape variety to Chile, uh, it was it was a very important grape variety. Wine, unlike a lot of other food items, uh, keeps for an entire year, two years, potentially. And this is an amazing source of calories. And so I said something along the lines of um, that, a lot of the indigenous people were really grateful that that wine was introduced um, to South America. This is, again, another example of us perpetuating this myth of uh, Western slash European slash white superiority um, that somehow by us bringing grapes to uh, South America, we were able to help the, the poor starving indigenous populations, which is uh, just so wildly untrue. Um, any reason that they, were, that they would have been struggling at the time of these colonizers coming in uh, was probably directly due to famines uh, and, and wars and disease that we caused, uh, that the colonizers caused. If we look back historically at, at Central and South America, um, these were some of the greatest empires ever known to man. And this somehow doesn't get translated into our wine language and the way that we speak about, um, you know, wine in the Southern Hemisphere or any other areas, you know, when we talk about uh, Australia or South Africa. Again, I've, I've noticed certain hangups in my own language. And this is the thing, is like, I've perpetuated this myth for the last, like, eight years after hearing it, from somebody or reading it from somebody in a book. And I never stopped to consider that this little piece of information that I had was untrue uh, and devalues the experiences of of people in South America. Uh, And so I think that it's important that we have this this conversation and it's important that we admit these things um, publicly and we talk about them publicly so that we can hopefully take a better look at all the things that we say um, from a wine perspective and, and see how there are these, these little grains of white supremacy just shoved in there that, that we don't even realize, these little implicit biases that we don't realize that we have. Um, and so I've edited out that part of the, the podcast uh, and explained it here and, and you know, moving forward, it's it gives me an opportunity to speak about it in a different way and, and share sort of a different perspective. Um, so hopefully that's valuable to you, uh, and hopefully we can continue having this discussion about other regions and about other wine things. Really unsung grape variety, you don't really see it planted, mm-hmm. or at least not bottled on its own anymore. It's consumed a lot locally. Um, it tends to make quite light-colored wines, but quite intensely flavored mm-hmm. wines. And in North America, in particular, uh, there was uh you know especially over the last 20 years people have been very obsessed with dark wines Mm. and so this grape variety sort of fell out of favor even though it makes really delicious wines uh people were like ah it's like but we want dark wines we want really dark and because they think that means more flavorful but this is again as flavorful as a wine gets it's uh powerful it's intense uh this is a lot higher alcohol than the other ones that we've tasted so far this is 14% alcohol versus the last wine we had was 12% Mm. so it's uh substantially more, a little more powerful. Um, but this is made uh, sort of as an ode to all the traditional methods of Chile.
1: Mm-hmm. So this
0: is hand-de-stemmed grapes. Um, they use this this um, basically combination of like interwoven reeds, and then they roll the grape bunches over the top of it, and basically there's little holes that the grapes can make their way through, but the stems can't. Mm-hmm. And so they're using this old-school method to, to do that. Um, they're fermenting it in what they call pipas, which is like their barrel size there. Mm. Um, and that's why this is called a, a pipeno. Uh, so pipeno is like the style of wine. Um, basically any wine aged in a pipa mm. made from, from usually from Pai, but also from, uh, I think you also see like cinso planted down there. Um, but yeah, it's this really traditional style of wine. That's kind of his idea here. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, we want to do a throwback and then we want to share this with the world because a lot of it gets consumed locally. But he was tasting these wines. He's like, these, these are amazing. These farmers deserve to be just as famous as anybody in France. Mm-hmm. And so he bottles it under uh, the farm's name um, for the winery. Oh, cool. um, so this particular one, because he does a bunch of them. Um, so this is uh, Portozuelo. Uh, yeah. And then you'll see on on different bottlings of this same wine, different names of different farms, mm-hmm. uh, depending on who the actual uh, farm owner is, mm-hmm. which is kind of a cool, again, way of, of you know, showing off mm-hmm. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. What do you think of the wine?
1: I want to describe this wine the way I would want to describe, like, scotch or whiskey. I don't know if mm. that would be um, characteristic or if you would feel the same. Totally. Like, when you said tobacco about something else, like, that really kind of resonated with me for this yeah. wine. I agree, like, intensely flavored. But, again, I think it's not, um, to me, it's not, like, a full-body, right, experience. It's Yeah. Still,
0: it's definitely not overpowering in any yeah, way. Like yeah. Like, it kind of
1: washes over the tongue really easily. And it's something that... From a texture perspective, I could Mm. see being um, almost, I wouldn't say light, but I would say that something that I could see being, is it like, would you say medium body would be a good description Mm. on the lighter Mm -hmm. side? I don't.
0: Sorry, I'm crushing your talk here. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'd say that this falls like directly between medium and full body. Mm. It's kind of like right on that edge. Um, mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't know how, you know, from a wine pairing perspective, how you're, if there's a way you're supposed to try it. But I liked the pairing when I drank a sip of wine and ate a bite of taco. But then I didn't like it as much when I ate the taco and then had a sip of wine.
0: Totally. That's that's totally fair. Um, yeah, I, I wonder why that would be. Uh, what what is this particular taco?
1: This is a suadero. Um, when yeah. you talked about Chile, and, we, and I was reading something around like braised, like offal especially. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't an offal taco right now at Connie. But <laughs> so the suadero is like a confit brisket. Mm. And there is onion in here and cilantro. And so I actually felt like drinking a sip of the wine and then eating a bite of the taco, like that onion flavor actually was totally. a good comp- compliment i don't mm-hmm. know if i would say that the two together is a great pairing
0: yeah I, I think it's it's a neutral pairing it's does. Yeah. It, it you know it's not, it's offensive, not yeah exactly like i would happily drink this wine and eat this taco <laughs>
1: um
0: is there maybe a better pairing probably there's something out there that's that's going to do really well with this but uh i think like in particular maybe grenache with this would be mm. kind of my, maybe my go-to mm-hmm. um but yeah totally depends again on the day of the week depends on my, my feelings for that day but
1: So how do you know when you're drinking a wine or in terms of recommendation for a pairing? I know that I like the pairing when I've tried it. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know when I'm drinking a bottle of wine what I might want to pair it with.
0: Mm, That's a really good question. Um, Yeah, there's a handful of things that I look at. So the first thing that I look at is like the structure of the wine. So these are like literally the physical components that make up the wine. So the acidity, the tannin. Uh, you know, the alcohol level. So for instance, high alcohol wines, they actually dilate the pores on your tongue, uh, which makes them super not good for Mm -hmm. uh, spicy foods. Um, So if you have a wine that's like 15% alcohol, like a big Shiraz from from Australia, uh, and you have, you know, something super spicy, it's gonna be not fun at all inside Mm -hmm. your mouth. It's just gonna be way too hot. Um, Same thing with tannin. So tannin actually uh, basically, gets rid of all the saliva in your mouth Mm -hmm. and the last thing you want is a dry mouth when you have spicy food Mm -hmm. uh so you know high tannin wine so i look at things like that and i'm like okay cool this wine is high tannin or high alcohol it's definitely not going to go with spicy food um so you can kind of think about things Mm -hmm. like that that's usually the first direction that i go Mm -hmm. um and then i'm kind of basing it off of off of flavor profile from from there um Again, if a wine's delicate, uh, it often goes with delicate foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a little more powerful, then it can obviously, you know, stand up to certain flavors. Mm-hmm. And powerful and like body don't necessarily get along. Uh, so something like a riesling, which can be very light in body, but super intensely flavored, can mm-hmm. go with really flavorful dishes. Again, we talked about Thai food earlier, which tends to be quite flavorful, mm-hmm. quite pronounced flavors. Mm-hmm. And so you need something with you know equivalent flavor intensity. Um, mm-hmm yeah it's it's one of those things that sort of just it takes a lot of practice and mm-hmm. it takes a lot of experimentation um there are a couple you know i, I always make the argument that uh, if it doesn't go with pizza it's not wine uh, so <laughs> you, you always have at least one safe pairing for every single wine you have you're like yeah this goes with pizza uh so you know you have certain certain crutches like that for sure but uh yeah i i don't know it's uh it's definitely something that comes with practice, sure. and, and yeah, I try and consider all those things. But I think the structural components is the number one thing. Mm. That's um,
1: really interesting. So there's a lot of like te- technical aspect to mm-hmm. it as well. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: definitely, definitely. And especially things like you know fatty foods, they need high acid. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of all these like, little rules that you come up with in your head. Mm. Um, I'd say that 90% of the time, uh, white wine is going to be the best pairing um, mm. for almost every dish. And that yeah. includes meat dishes. Um, yeah. That includes things like tacos. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, when in doubt, white wine is definitely the way to go. When in doubt, sparkling wine is the way to go. Uh, it's usually the better option. Do um, you think
1: that thinking has evolved? Because I agree. Mm-hmm. Like white wine tends to be in our household, the one that we gravitate towards. Yeah. Um, and yet I remember growing up, there was always this like misconception of like, well, the Merlots and the cabs and, you know, but yeah. like red wine being a bit more favorable, but mm-hmm. also like red wine for like beef and then white wine for chicken and seafood. Yeah. But I feel like the, that myth has been busted over the past few
0: years. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I, I 100% agree with that, that it's, uh, you know, especially, you know, we talk about this all the time, but like in Alberta, this is a red wine province. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not, you know, a lot of the people that we talk to uh, we're like, hey, cool. Would you like the last wine? Like, yeah, for sure. Are uh, you thinking red or white today? Like, well, obviously red. Like, what do you mean obviously <laughs> red? Uh, like all the rest of the world is like happy drinking white and mm-hmm. red. And it's just like that's a normal thing versus in Alberta. Like you talk, you're talking about wine. You're talking about red wine. Interesting. Um, and so and I get that it's cold here a lot. And I get that we have lots of good beef. But I don't know if that's necessarily a good argument for drinking exclusively yeah. red wine or only thinking that red wines the fancy ones or huh. so yeah, we, we definitely uh, we definitely see that a lot and we sort of,
1: Interesting. I always thought it was just me because I always thought that maybe I drink too much of it when I was like, you know, 18, 19, 20. <laughs> yeah. That uh, when I go for wine tasting, I always tend to find that the white wines are the ones that have more interesting flavor profiles, mm. are the ones yeah. that gravitate towards, especially sure. when we drive through like California. We've done the trip a few times where we go to Sonoma and Napa and, mm-hmm. and try and do some tastings, or in the Okanagan, we try yeah. to go once a year and, and do some tastings. And I find that the cases of wine we bring home are usually white or sparkling or rosé. Totally.
0: Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a lot more distinction between white grape varieties than there is Mm -hmm. between uh, red grape varieties. Like even on entirely different ends of the spectrum, like whether it be Pinot Noir and Cabernet Sauvignon, you can still see a lot more similarities uh, and people can you know, especially people who haven't tasted a ton of wine, it's very forgivable for them to get those confused versus Mm. if you're tasting, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, like a really crisp New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and then like a really sort of weighty Chardonnay, and then a, you know, very aromatic Viognier, and then like the the diversity within white wine, I think is even greater than it is uh, in in red wine. Mm -hmm. Um, That's starting to change a little bit as we sort of get more acclimatized to different flavor profiles and to different weights of red Mm -hmm. wine uh you're seeing a lot more light delicate you know 10 percent alcohol bright fresh red wines and I think that's sort of extending the spectrum a little bit um but yeah it's uh yeah I I would definitely agree with Mm -hmm. that
1: so how do you because we were just talking about the wine club but how do you um pick the wines in each um wine club how do you pick the combination what do you look Mm -hmm. for
0: yeah um it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a handful of things. So again, understanding that most of our viewers are going to really favor red wine. We try and have most of the time, two bottles of red and one bottle of either white rosé or sparkling, mm-hmm. uh, or orange wine. And, um, but that changes every once in a while. Every once in a while, we just get an opportunity to use something that's so cool that we, we mm-hmm. can't say no to it. So maybe we'll have two whites or a white and a sparkling and a red. Um, but we always try and make sure that there's a red in there, um, as I was saying earlier, there's like about 150 members now, and most of the wines that we work with are extraordinarily small production, mm-hmm. and so getting enough wine for 150 members is becoming very, very difficult. Yeah. So we're planning, you know, six to eight months in advance um, and setting aside our entire annual allocation of a certain wow. wine in order to be able to put it into the wine club. Now, um, we also use other importers as well, not just ourselves. So uh, you know, every once in a while we'll use a wine from our friends at Garnot Block mm-hmm. or Um, you know, a handful of other importing agents as well in order to sort of expand. Um, But yeah, we want wines that are exciting. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of retailers, because they they then have to sell the wine, um, they're sometimes hesitant to put the coolest wines on the shelf because they're like, how many people actually want to drink this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Versus with the wine club, we're like, cool, we Mm -hmm. have 150 people who have already told us, Mm -hmm. yeah, get as wild as you feel like, Uh, show us all the cool wines out there. And so... We have a little more freedom, so we can use stuff that's maybe sort of more on the fringe of the wine world. Um, but, yeah, we want them to represent good value. You know, it's 100 bucks a month, so you're mm-hmm. getting $100 or $105 or $110 worth of wine every month. Um, and so, you know, you're usually getting a bottle that's around 40 to $50, a bottle that's mm-hmm. sort of 30 to 40 and then one that's sort of like 20 to 30 okay. kind of crammed in there. Um, so yeah, we, we like showing that that full spectrum for sure. Yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah. And yeah. then in this world of, like we talked about how there's so much access now to information, how do you find out about, you know, wines that are new to you or vineyards that are new to you or producers?
0: Yeah, we definitely, you know, sort of have a, a handful of people um, all around the world that really have their finger on, their pul- on, on the pulse, um, especially in places like New York, Paris, Tokyo, London, uh, the places where... It's the first place that any wine gets exported to, Uh, any new winemaker, because they have the population to support that many more wines. Um, Their population is also, uh, they they have enough people who are wine geeks to be able to seek out those new producers. so for us, it's looking at restaurants like, uh, you know, like Noble Rot uh, in London or, um, you know, a handful of really cool wine bars in, in, in Tokyo, uh, like Weinstein Waltz and, uh, you know, uh, Weinstein Boutte mm-hmm. in Tokyo. And we look at what they're drinking. And, and when we're in those places, we try and order those bottles mm-hmm. off the, you know, off their list, taste them. If we think they're really exciting, then we'll try and plan to go to that region um and then hopefully we can stop in meet the producer taste the wines hopefully they're good but yeah there's a handful of people around the world that we really trust their opinion so that's sort of our, our starting point point. and then we work our way from them and, and try and taste so yeah.
1: um
0: yeah yeah what are you drinking at home these
1: days um, oh, it's funny. I was joking about this with uh, Roy O. I don't know if you're Roy O. From, I know Roy very Yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> I was joking with him because he's a good friend of ours. And we were talking about like just this pandemic and some of the behavioral changes. And I feel like I've drank less in the pandemic oh, wow. than I have prior yeah. to the pandemic. Mostly because my partner works um, for the Edmonton Public School Board. So mm. he's actually in Edmonton during the week, okay. comes yeah. back on weekends. And so when it's me at home by myself, because I'm not seeing friends, um, A, I'm not going through as much alcohol, because I have learned that it's almost like a social experience. Social experience for me. Yeah. And B, I'm not eating out as much now because, like, we keep going into lockdown situations. Yes. And so nobody's asking me, Can I top up your glass? Would you like another one? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, like, I'm not doing that for myself. So, what I tend to actually gravitate towards now in, in the pandemic is maybe pouring. Um, in the Okanagan, we had discovered last year a new distillery called Wiseacre. Okay. And they, the family is so amazing. They have this beautiful property, and again, it's that experience of, of we've been there, we've seen the property, we've met their donkeys. They have <laughs> a donkey named Peppa. Oh my um, goodness! <laughs> you know, we've seen like their cow, Valentina. But they're doing vodkas and gins, yep. and we bought a case of their single malt vodka. And mm-hmm. So that's actually been a favorite of mine because I nice. pour over ice and just sip it. Totally. Yeah. Um, but I have some Bella sparkling wines that we're going oh, yeah. through Bella's right awesome. now. Yeah. yeah.
0: Jay and Wendy are like such sweethearts too. Yeah. And they also have a good, uh, good little farm uh, and Buddha. Little little the dog. Oh my God, yeah. Buddha! I met Buddha like the the week they got him. I think, Uh, and oh my goodness, he was obsessed with eating my shoelaces. (laughs) So cute. Oh, that dog (laughs) is so cute.
1: (laughs) So cute. So yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought I'd be drinking more, so I think I had ordered like, I want to say 12 bottles from Bella. Yeah. Um, And we had stuff from Lightning Rock.
0: Nice, um, yeah. In the so we import Lightning in. Rock into Alberta.
1: Oh, awesome. Yeah,
0: yeah. They're awesome. really good friends.
1: They're yeah. amazing. We ha- we went to a beautiful dinner there last year um, at one point, and there's a woman in the Okanagan, her name is Amin, mm-hmm. and she owns the Paisley Notebook, and okay. she does these dinners called Source, where it's hyper-local. She um, is all about ethics and integrity, and she picks producers, and she picks businesses to work with based off of having that community feel and so mm-hmm. she hosted a dinner at lightning rock that we attended and all of the ingredients came from farmers within their network um and then her and her mom cooked food outdoors oh my goodness. and it was a distanced <laughs> dinner uh, at lightning rock where we each had our own like parties we Each each of our parties had our own tables and it was just the beautiful experience
0: yeah that's a great little property too it's got a great view for sure
1: and it has a lightning rock
0: yeah which is a lightning rock
1: yeah (laughs) definitely yeah so self-serving question Mm -hmm. if i'm eating indian food tonight because we will be yeah and there's a lime a lamb dish i think we have a lot of vegetarian dishes what would you recommend we try for wine
0: there's a couple different directions you can go uh My favorite thing with Indian food is often orange wine. Okay. Um, So orange wine's uh, made from white grapes but fermented with the grape skins, so you extract a lot more sort of savory elements from it. Um, So they tend to produce this certain flavor compound called uh, satolin or sotolon, depending on who you're talking to. And uh, it's actually the same flavor compound that you find in curry leaves Mm. um, or in fenugreek, for instance. Mm. So, and also in maple syrup for Mm. no apparent reason. Mm. Um, But so yeah, I find that orange wines pair Mm. really well. Uh, And then one of the other things that I like that's like sort of like a secret guilty pleasure is definitely Gewürztraminer. Uh, oh, cool. I think Gewürztraminer is is really underrated because it's so flamboyant and and it almost has obnoxious flavors. Mm-hmm. Like it's so loud mm-hmm. and gregarious, but I think that it works really well because again, it can pick up this interesting sort of rosewater characteristic. Okay. Um, that I find works really well with some of the spice components of, of Indian okay. food. So, I'm pretty um,
1: sure I have some Gewürz at home. so I Yeah, to
0: try that. I think that would be a really fun pairing. I think you'd uh, you'd really enjoy it.
1: So. Yeah. No, I like Gewürz from yours. We like Rieslings. I yeah. know they get a bad reputation, but I love them. Yeah.
0: And yeah. like R- R- Roy is definitely like yeah, the king Roy's... of Rieslings. So I feel like uh, he would yeah. probably have a positive influence <laughs> on your Riesling consumption. <laughs> Riesling and chartreuse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh my goodness. Yeah, for <laughs> sure it's deadly anytime Roy's around it's I, I feel like I'm gonna have a night uh, so yeah is the
1: best host in the city I think
0: yes yeah no it's such a such a lovely person so mm-hmm. perfect cool well I think that's uh we've we've spoken already for over an hour it's wow, so surprising hey? every time we do this um but yeah thank you so much for for coming out and uh you know we really appreciate it and, and especially again getting a different perspective on on wine and the food scene in Calgary and and uh you know, on the food scene in general, I guess globally is, is sort of what we talked about, but... Uh, it's been a real pleasure, you know, especially it's, getting to know you. I f- we haven't met in real life We before, actually so.
1: haven't, and I think that that's the benefit of, you know, the social media is you get to meet some really cool people that are mm-hmm. like-minded and then have some great conversations. So thank you for having me. lot.
0: Oh, no, happy to have you. Uh, if anybody has any questions about any of the wines, feel free to drop us an email. Uh, my email address is eric E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com, uh, and you'll be hearing more from us in a couple weeks. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Jane B Dude, dog.
1: oh do